The Ostomy Nurse Project. Hello and welcome back to part two of Stoma's Horrible Histories from the Ostomy Nurse Project. I just wanted to let you guys know that as of our uh, first episode, so Stoma's Horrible Histories Part 1, we have now reached over 100 downloads. So I thank you very much. It's made me very excited because when I look at the stats of who's listening, that means that I have reached out to over 100 people who tune in and listen to what I have to say. That's a very humbling number to me uh, because when I started this podcast, I really didn't know if anybody wanted to sit and listen to what I had to say. So thank you. I am so grateful for you all who are tuning in and listening to our podcast. And I hope that in the weeks to come, you will find many more interesting episodes that are churned out for the benefit of your listening. So thank you. Now, in last week's episode, we spent a lot of time talking about the origins of intestinal injury and how stomas were inadvertently formed through surgeons observing the spontaneous rupture of things like perforated hernias or battle wounds resulting in intestinal injuries. And what they did, the techniques that they performed on people suffering from these problems and how that evolved into the latter part of the 1700s and creating a colostomy or fixing the intestine to the external abdomen. At the very later part of the episode, we talked about the fact that Jeanne Amassar had recommended and started producing stomas through the lumbar entry, so around the back, and how they were a safer option in the absence of things like antibiotics, where incision into the peritoneum was very risky, and people would often get infections and die from uh, entering the abdomen that way. So in the evolution of the lumbar colostomy, people were surviving and that procedure had continued on for approximately 45 years before advancements in surgical techniques and surgery and things like antibiotics started to change that practice and bring it back towards performing stomas back in through the front of the abdomen. We also spent a little bit of time talking about particular surgeons who improved certain techniques. I covered all about William Cheseldon, who merged the practice of surgeons and physicians so that surgeons were better educated through a university-style degree. And that greatly improved the practice of surgery so that techniques were being performed by surgeons who had a better understanding of the anatomy and uh, that would improve their skill so that operations were far more effective than going in blindly, basically, which was what was happening when they were originally the barber surgeons who were trained basically on apprenticeship style without any formal education or training. Now, one of the things that I really want to point out is the fact that certain medical procedures or suggestions of treatments throughout the centuries have always been done with the best intentions, but have not necessarily produced the best outcomes. And when I was talking in episode one about performing colostomies um, as a last chance resort, really for people who had bowel obstructions relating to cancerous tumors or people who would surely die in the event of not receiving any sort of surgery, there were certain medical treatments that surgeons used to suggest to a patient to try and resolve their obstructions and their, their issues prior to undergoing surgery. And one of those things I wanted to point out, which we would consider 
crazy in this day and age, but it was actually a fairly common practice back in the 1700s, were things like suggesting that people ingest mercury to resolve bowel obstructions, thinking that the weight of the mercury passing through the bowel would actually shift that obstruction out of the way and would clear a path and stretch the bowel to avoid that obstruction. Now, that might sound crazy to you guys, but even as late as the early 1800s, there was a surgeon called Thomas Sydenham who was still recommending mercury for uh, intestinal stenosis. So for anybody who doesn't know, stenosis is basically another word for closing up or or closing over so that it it, um, heals so intently that nothing gets through. It's, It's trying to close itself like a wound. And he was recommending the ingestion of mercury for stretching out that stenosis to pull the tissue open after inserting a needle through the bowel to decompress it. And that just, it it fathoms me to think that they were considering that a suitable medical practice back then. Um, And if they had known what mercury ingestion was actually doing to people at the time, which inevitably was severely poisoning them, all of these people who were passing away, perhaps these surgeons didn't know back then that they, their deaths were likely attributed to, to mercury poisoning in the heavy doses that they were making them ingest and swallow to try and resolve their issues. Um, so in the first episode, when I was talking back in 1776, I think it was, when Pilor was creating a cecum stoma, so a stoma in the first part of the large bowel, So Pilor was the French surgeon in Rouen in France who performed a colostomy on a patient only known as Mr. M. Morel. Not sure of the first name. But Mr. Morel was a wine merchant and he had gotten in touch with this surgeon for he was having difficulty evacuating his bowels because of an obstruction. So it was actually a, a rectal cancer. And so Pilor created uh, this colostomy on this patient, but the patient actually died 28 days later, as I said, and he died from severe gangrene of his his bowel. And they suggest that that was caused by the weight of the mercury that lay in that piece of bowel itself. So whether or not he died from severe mercury poisoning or whether he died from the gangrene is not known, but it just highlights to me the types of treatments that they used to suggest for treating bowel obstructions back then and how we would obviously never dream of performing these treatments today because we know the the drastic and, and horrendous effects that it was having on these people at the time. So here we are, we're in the early parts of the 1800s, so into the early parts of the 19th century, and there's a few documents out there who actually collated published records of people who had survived surgery and creation of a stoma. And interestingly, somewhere between the years of 1716 and 1839, so we're talking over a 100-year span, approximately 27 cases of colostomy were published. There's probably more that were performed But again, if you don't document it, it didn't happen, as I keep saying. So of the 27 cases of colostomy that were performed throughout those 100 years, it doesn't seem like much, only six of those people went on to survive that operation. 
And that really points out a few things to me. So one, it points out the fact that colostomy was really only performed back in the day for people who were really, really sick and were inevitably going to die anyway. So in the cases of rectal cancers, where it was purely done as more of a palliative effect to relieve the patient's symptoms so that they could die peacefully. Or they went on to develop secondary complications. So things like infections, perhaps from mercury poisoning, or other different things that resulted in them passing away um, from the extent of their injuries. So out of 27 documented cases, only six people survived. And therein highlights the fact that surgery itself had to be done quickly. It was done as a last resort because there was really, there was no anesthesia in the early part of the, the 18th century. So patients were merely filled up with pain relief or analgesia or even maybe sedated so that they could be operated on. The surgery had to be very quick. And what I'm going to be talking about in the first part of this episode is the fact that there were certain events in time that promoted surgery uh, in a better light and made it easier for surgeons to operate on patients. And that's things like the discovery of antibiotics, the discovery of anesthesia in the form of ether, and different surgical techniques that were promoted as people studied longer and developed better techniques. And journals and medical journals of these cases that were getting around the world. And so because we really didn't understand back then about the theory of, of how germs were transmitted and how they created infection, the connection between uncleanliness and the spread of diseases was poorly understood. And many people continued to die simply as a result of poor hygiene. Many women died in childbirth because of infection. And even something as simple as having your teeth pulled out could be fatal. Major surgery was, was obviously particularly dangerous. Dirty surgical instruments caused wounds to be infected. And this caused the death of many people. And at the time, a doctor's consultation was also very costly and often inconclusive. And doctors would often only deal with the wealthiest members of society and the poor were basically left to seek alternate forms of help. So backyard doctors who had no idea about sterilizing instruments. And lower down the scale, the barber surgeons, before they separated, might have been called upon to perform these surgical procedures. People who didn't get into medical school who would still practice these, these surgeries on people. And it really wasn't until the 1850s, midway into the 19th century, that Louis Pasteur helped to verify the germ theory. He didn't create the germ theory, but he helped to verify it instead of the old miasma theory, uh, which talked about essentially bad air. Now, if you want more information on the miasma theory or, or how people perceived um, the spread of germs back in the days, there is also a really good podcast, which is a subsidiary of the Stuff You Should Know podcast on Spotify. It's called Invention, and it's hosted by Robert Lamb and Joe McCormick, and they have a particular episode which explains the invention of the toilet. And it explores the ancient origins of the toilet and the origins of the modern flush toilet and how sewers worked to create um, healthy relocation of our excrement so that people wouldn't get sick from the miasma or the bad air that would come from, from these areas. Because they didn't understand back then that was it actually germ theory or it was germs that people were contracting um, through the spread of touch and transmission of, of um 
microbes from one person to another, not in the air, but by touch. So that's a great episode if you want to tune into that invention from Stuff You Should Know. And also very applicable to us because we talk about all things poos and wheeze. So the talk about the invention of the toilet is a great one to listen to. I recommend it highly. So back to Louis Pasteur and his uh, verification of germ theory. Pasteur originally invented the pasteurization process, which was patented in 1865 as a means to, originally, it was a means to prevent wine spoilage. And he found that by heating wine to between 60 and 100 degrees, microorganisms were destroyed, making it uh, last longer to preserve it. He later applied this technique to other spoilables, including milk. And here's your first fun fact for the day. Incidentally, the word for pasteurized milk comes from Louis' surname and not, in fact, related to the term pasture, which you might associate with cows grazing in pasture and cows create milk. Now, it might have just been the blonde in me that I always just thought that pasteurization was to do with cows in pasture. But evidently, no, it was Louis Pasteur and his work originally on preserving wine uh, that led to pasteurizing milk and heat treating milk so that um, it would last longer and it wouldn't contain any microbes that could make people sick. So if you ever buy your little cartons of UHT milk that's ultra heat treated, that is Louis Pasteur's work, where by heating the milk to a certain level, it kills any bugs and germs. So Pasteur's work ultimately led to the introduction of antiseptic procedures, and that was done via Joseph Lister, the British surgeon who promoted the idea of sterile surgery whilst working at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, so in Scotland. And as this movement was evolving, infections and deaths fell dramatically. And combined with the discovery of anesthesia, this enabled surgeons to operate more slowly, more carefully, and more confidently on patients, and in turn reaping new discoveries and new improvements in their skills, especially in creating stomas. Now, it's one thing to promote this germ theory and create a relatively aseptic field when you're doing surgery by sterilizing your instruments, washing your hands, those sorts of things, making sure that everything is as sterile as possible. This time in history still did not include the use of antibiotics. So while surgery was progressing and people were surviving because people were mindful of the germ theory, being able to treat infections that happened afterwards was impossible until the discovery of antibiotics many, many years later. So in the 17 and 1800s, the philosophy of asepsis during surgery was being promoted and people were able to withstand those surgeries without developing infections and dying. However, in terms of stomas, the availability of antibiotic cover for contaminated peritoneal wounds wouldn't become available until the discovery of penicillin by Alexander Fleming in the 1940s, so some 80 to 90 years after aseptic surgery and anesthesia were implemented. In 1909, Paul Ehrlich and Alexander Fleming discovered the antimicrobial cure for syphilis-infected rabbits. Lovely. I don't know how they figured that rabbits had syphilis, but anyway. Despite the side effects, the drug marketed under the name Salvarsin was a great success, together with a more modern, soluble and less toxic neosalvarsin. These drugs became the most frequently prescribed drug 
because let's face it, everyone back then had syphilis, uh, until its replacement by penicillin in the 1940s. So penicillin, as penicillin, wasn't actually the first drug to be discovered. It was salvarsin and neosalvarsin. And the discovery of the first three antimicrobials, salvarsin, prontosil, and penicillin, was exemplary throughout history. And the period between the 1950s and the 1970s was considered the golden era of antibiotics and it changed surgery forever. People were able to survive their surgeries long after they'd happened um, and any post-op infections or anything like that was able to finally be treated with these drugs that would help them recover. So it's really interesting to think nowadays, isn't it, that it hasn't even been a 100 years since antibiotics were discovered and used. So you really wonder to yourself, what happened to people in surgery before that? They had to rely on asepsis and surgical techniques that would avoid areas uh, that had the potential for developing severe infections. Hence, the introduction of the lumbar colotomy or the colostomy in the back, which I've been talking about, which Amosar popularised. because it avoided the peritoneum and they were getting better results in a quicker time frame by producing colostomies in the back. Now, just going back again, we were just talking before about anesthesia and, and the development of anesthesia in the form of ether. But what did they use before ether came out? Now, they used to use several different things. The cheapest and most readily available was alcohol. The oldest known sedative used uh, way back into ancient Mesopotamia, so thousands of years ago. Alcohol was easy to produce. Uh, it was effective at killing microbes, not that they knew that they were doing that back then, but alcohol was readily available to rich people and poor people. They could make it in a relatively quick space of time. And as I mentioned in episode one, and I was talking about the poultices or the, the, the uh, bits of cloth that they were placing as a dressing over these newly created stomas, they contained wine or alcohol of some description. And then as a septic technique came along in the 1800s, when I was just talking about making sure that the uh, instruments were sterilized, they would sterilize their hands and their instruments in alcohol, uh, in many cases in spirit alcohol. So that was also readily available. And that has even been used for thousands of years as a means of asepsis and rendering a person unconscious. We all know, and I'm sure we've all experienced at some point in our lives, that alcohol can render you pretty much unconscious or not feel a great deal if you drink enough of it. So it had multiple uses and it was definitely put to use. Back in the day, probably it was mixed with lots of herbal antimicrobial ingredients, um, but alcohol itself was the prime um, anesthesia, I say anesthesia, but it was the prime method of reducing somebody's pain threshold whilst they were undergoing surgery. Then there was opium. So opium was originally cultivated by the Sumerians and evidence of its use date back to as early as the third millennium BC. And it was called the plant of joy. 
I love that name. I think it's very fitting. And opium was used as a powerful analgesic and opiate. And if you remember that I spoke about Queen Caroline and the horrendous death that she suffered suffered back in episode one, she would have been given significant amounts of opium at the time to keep her comfortable in the days preceding her death. And it was very popular in Europe to use opium. It was grown readily um, because we know opium comes from the poppy flower. Now, India and China and those sorts of um, uh, continents weren't introduced to opium until after the 8th century AD. So quite a while afterwards, they didn't know about opium. And they instead relied on concoctions of wine, so alcohol again, and cannabis. And they used to use things like cannabis incense to treat painful conditions. And even now in modern day times, cannabis is starting to become more recognized again for its ability to relieve pain in people with chronic illnesses and cancer. So we have known for a long time that cannabis is um, a very effective analgesic. And even in countries like India and China, way back hundreds of years ago, were using cannabis as a means of relieving pain whilst undergoing surgery. Now we enter the time of ether. So ether, even though anesthesia is relatively a new concept, ether itself was discovered long, long, long ago, way before antibiotics, way before many surgical procedures and asepsis. So ether was known as sweet vitriol, and I'll explain why in a minute. And it was first discovered in 1275 by a Spanish chemist named Raimundus Lilius. Now, while ethyl ether was first created in 1540, by Valerius Cordus, it wouldn't actually be put to use um, and it wouldn't make history until October the 16th, 1846 at the Massachusetts General Hospital when John Collins Warren was the first successful surgeon to use ether in a surgical procedure. And there's many, many pictures and documents of this historical day when when they used ether as a full anesthetic on a patient to perform surgery on them. Now, it wouldn't actually be called ether until 1729 when August Sigmund Frobenius um, actually named it ether or otherwise known as diethyl ether. And it was made by pouring the oil of vitriol, which is sulfuric acid, into uh, alcohol. And the sweet, clear liquid that uh, resulted from that could do heaps of things. It could extract essential oils. It could separate gold. It could separate copper. Um, And so whilst they had discovered it back in 1729, they suggested that it would be important in the fields of chemistry and pharmacy, but they didn't really know in what aspect at the time. They never knew that it would end up being used to anesthetized humans. And it's actually a bit of a funny story how they discovered that they could use it as a form of anesthesia because, and it's a bit of a naughty thing that they did, but there was a doctor called Crawford Long who he and his other surgeon friends would actually uh, use diethyl ether to get high among themselves. They would breathe it in and inhale it and they would have a grand old time and they they used it recreationally. And he noticed while they were all under the influence that any injuries that they were getting were 
painless. They they were realizing that they had, had developed these injuries, but they couldn't tell how they got them. They couldn't feel them. And uh, in, whilst he was inspired by this, he got the idea that a patient could be given ether uh, as a means of pain-free surgery. And so with the, the discovery and the use of ether and as well as chloroform as a means of anesthesia, uh, in the 1800s, surgery could be done longer uh, and more accurately because they didn't have to rush in and out before the patient woke up and started screaming, basically. Uh, and so this was a really miraculous discovery and, and it grew in fame so quickly that they used it in all types of surgeries and particularly in things like the American Civil War where they were having to perform terrible surgeries like amputations on the battlefield. So ether and chloroform were used quite extensively um, during these war times to do horrific operations including cutting someone's leg off and probably abdominal injuries like we spoke about in episode one where people were getting abdominal stab wounds and their intestines were coming out they could very quickly anesthetize somebody and operate on the abdomen without them being awake at the time so wrapping all of that up before i continue on about stomas that basically covers the evolution of how surgery progressed in the 1800s and right through to the early 1900s and even up till today where surgical progression has advanced so much that surgeons then started to take on more intricate operations and they could do more and they could investigate more and they could even do operations on patients with um, the use of antibiotics to prevent infections. And that in particular relates to the involvement and eventual turning back to the anterior form of stoma formation. So the inguinal stomas like Littre had suggested back in 1710, because surgeons were getting better at the technique. They had the use of anesthesia and much later on, they had the use of antibiotics. So this is where we start to get into the era of small bowel injury and small bowel stomas. So ileostomy, and the use of urinary diversion in the form of an ileal conduit. Now let's start with colostomy because uh, in previous episode number one, we talked about how colostomies were basically the stoma that were created first and foremost as a result of damage to the, to the bowel in the form of hernia or stab wounds and things like that. So it was always originally just colostomy creation. Now, the idea of creating ileostomy and neurostomy wouldn't come until much later, so into the 19th and 20th century. But starting with um, colostomy, there were still innovations taking place well into the late 1700s, into the 1800s and beyond. So at the end of the first episode, I had spoken about Lorenz Heister, I had spoken about um, George Arnaud, William Cheselden and a few others. Other people and other surgeons were also well-skilled in forming colostomies as the years went on. They were becoming a lot more respected in their field because they had access to education now. And so there's a few surgeons that do pop up throughout medical history who were pioneering the, the creation of colostomies. Dominique Larray in 1799 was creating stomas with a suture, so stitching the intestine to the skin, which was a new thing at the time. A few years before that, another French surgeon called Dagascot uh, in 1795 had created a colostomy on a farmer who fell on a, a picket stake 
after he'd fallen. Uh, he was loading wheat onto a cart. Dagger Sko created a colostomy from that injury, and that man lived until he was 81, and he managed that stoma by using a small leather pouch um, as a collection device because there was no pouches back then. Other surgeons like George Freer into 1815 was creating a colostomy on a newborn baby and unfortunately that baby died three weeks later. Now there were surgeons who were opposed to the idea of creating stomas. Professor Gross of Philadelphia in 1859 was quite disgusted really at the approach that surgeons were taking that they were operating on these newborn babies and he thought Um, And I quote, I cannot confess that I appreciate the benevolence which prompts a surgeon to form an artificial outlet for the discharge of feces in the case of an imperforate anus. So there were some surgeons who disagreed with the practice of creating colostomies, but they were still pioneering these techniques. Because really they were still a matter of life and death for many people. And had they have not operated on them and created these stomas, they surely would have died anyway. And even up until 1887, William Allingham was uh, performing colostomies in a double lumen fashion, so what we would now know today as a loop colostomy. And he was performing these colostomies that were actually held in place with a glass rod. Um, And so we still use that technique to this day. We use plastic rods in the form of a bit of tubing that we suture underneath the loop of stoma to hold it onto the skin and prevent it from retracting back in. But there's reports of surgeons who used many things to hold stomas in place or even to prevent stoma stenosis. There was in an American journal um, in 1874, so very similar to William Allingham's case, but he suggested that the opening of the colostomy is kept of the proper caliber by using a section of wax candle as a plug. So they really used all that they could get their hands on at the time, really, to keep stomas patent and open and fashioned onto the skin and not pulling back in like previous um, surgeons had mentioned as as a side effect of creating these stomas. Let's look at some of the other colostomies that created after the very first anaesthetic-induced surgery in 1842. 1876, Verneuil describes gastrostomy, So that's a stoma into the stomach. And these days we know that as inserting what we call a peg tube, um, where people feed themselves via a tube into the stomach. That was done in 1876. In 1888, Madel first described what we call the loop colostomy, which, as I just mentioned, was basically like the same colostomy that William Allingham uh, created. But a year later, Madel was describing it as a deliberate and intentionally formed stoma that wasn't completely separated, but instead by making an enterotomy into a part of the bowel so that it would create the two holes that we see when we look at a loop stoma. Now, at the same time that the popularity of the loop stoma was happening, this was actually coming along hand in hand with the idea of resection and exteriorization. So at this time, around the latter part of the 1800s, the work of Antoine Jobert de Lambert and Antoine Lambert, they were suggesting intestinal anastomosis, which if you've heard the other podcasts is simply where we reconnect two ends of the bowel. Now, up until the end of the 1800s, stoma formation had really been 
more focused on operating on the bell whilst it was on the inside. The only time that they would operate on it on the outside is if they had prolapsed or had formed a rupture as a result of a hernia. But the idea of entering the body and creating a stoma on the bell, if it was inside the abdomen, that was where they had tried to keep it on the inside. So resection with exteriorization became the favoured method of colonic resection at the very late end of the 1800s. And two surgeons, Paul and Mikulix, uh, were primarily responsible for uh, promoting this idea of pulling the bowel out of the body or the affected part of the bowel out of the body, cutting off the diseased section and creating either a stoma or reconnecting in the form of anastomosis and popping the bowel back inside. And so one of the original loop stoma operations was called the Paul Mikulix operation. And there's a few pictures of it online, but the best way I could probably describe it to you is if you have a loop of bowel being pulled out through a hole in the abdomen, say for instance there's a section of diseased bowel, say a couple of inches, you would pull that loop out of that hole in the abdomen, exposing the dead part, which you could then cut off away from the body, which leaves you with two ends of a piece of colon. What they did with those two ends was partly stapled them together and stitched the remaining pieces to the skin. And this is what we come to call back then as what we call a double barrel colostomy. So two holes, double barrel, two holes. And this procedure is still quite popular and it, it was still done. It can still be done in this day and age. However, there are other procedures that have superseded that um, and it tends to fall out of favor um, in terms of creating like a loop ileostomy or a loop stoma where uh, a simple enterotomy is made into the bowel rather than separating the two pieces completely. So the Paul Mikulix operation to create a double barrel colostomy at the time uh, was popularized at the end of the 1800s, so 1895. And it was about four years after this in 1899 that they started to discover spinal anesthesia. So not just general anesthesia with ether and chloroform, which had come out in the 1840s to 1850s, but they discovered that they could create spinal blocks and spinal anesthesia with nothing else but cocaine. So there you go, use of cocaine. Probably my fun fact number two of this podcast is that cocaine was actually used as a spinal anesthetic. And yes, there are equal amounts of reports of surgeons and doctors and anesthetists developing terrible addictions to cocaine as well. But let's assume that that doesn't happen in this day and age anymore. Now, whilst we're on the topic of the Paul Mikulix operation, Heading into the 1900s, so into the 20th century, in 1903, Mikulix actually proposed and documented the three-step treatment for colon cancer, which was, as I mentioned, exteriorization, so pulling the piece of uh, diseased bowel out through a hole in the abdomen, resection, so removing that part of diseased bowel, and delayed reconstitution of bowel continuity. And so that process is, is still followed to this day. So we obviously remove the damaged section of bowel, we give people a temporary stoma whilst that anastomosis is healing, and then later on down the track, in some cases, we can reanastomose that bowel and restore continuity after having a stoma for a period of time. 
Now, again, because advances in anesthesia were becoming more popular, patients were able to sustain longer surgeries. And so procedures like the abdominoperineal resection, where the rectum and the anal canal and everything was being removed, was able to be undertaken. Um, and so in 1908, a surgeon called Mayo left a uh, colostomy uh, in the iliac region following abdominoperineal resection for cancer. So that was their diverting colostomy at the time. Shortly after that, and this is where we start to get into the ileostomy, remember these dates, 1913, Brown created an ileostomy and a cecostomy for ulcerative colitis. So finally, we're starting to see incidences of stomas of the small bowel being created. And when I start talking about urinary diversions and ileal conduits, what might surprise you to know is that they were actually creating urinary diversions about 50 to 60 years before they started popularizing the ileostomy, which is really interesting to me because even though I have often said that the ileal conduit uh, is the newest version of stoma, which technically it is in that form um, when Bricker first popularized creating the ileal conduit. Way back then in the 1850s, they were starting to create urinary diversions. And I'm going to talk about that afterwards, but at the minute I'm talking about ileostomies. Now, even though I say Brown started doing an ileostomy in 1913, I want us to jump all the way backwards to 1797, so not even into the 1800s yet. The very last part of the 1700s, Professor Fine from Geneva performed the first transverse colostomy, but by accident. So Fine was actually aiming for an ileostomy to treat uh, cancerous bowel obstruction, but unfortunately, after the patient had died, they performed an autopsy on that patient about three months later, and the autopsy actually showed that Professor Fine had made a mistake, um, that he hadn't in fact created an ileostomy to divert away from the obstruction, but had missed it and actually gone into the colon instead. And needless to say, that patient unfortunately passed away. But you can see, even way back in the late 1700s, they were considering starting to create stomas out of the small bowel. And it wouldn't even become particularly popular because of the techniques and the lack of asepsis and antibiotics um, until it came around again into the 20th century, but in 1913 when Brown started creating the ileostomy. So for this surgeon, John Young Brown, in 1913, he uh, documented a case of treating ulcerative colitis by creating a temporary ileostomy. And uh, he went on to describe the fact that he restored continuity of the bowel, so he reversed that stoma by anastomosing it, so creating the two ends back together, uh, once that section of bowel below had healed. And although this particular type of stoma became the accepted norm at the time, particularly in America, mortality rates were still very high from this operation. Um, some of that's to do with the fact that the patients were usually pretty ill to begin with uh, before they underwent these operations, but there were obviously issues with infections and peritonitis also. 
And after this, really, other surgeons started to follow on and adapt their own techniques for creating an ileostomy. So in 1931, Rankin was doing an ileostomy and a total colectomy for uh, polyposis and conditions like ulcerative colitis. So they were fully removing the colon now, which they never would have done uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries um, due to time constraints in surgery. And the perception that they probably couldn't remove the bowel, it would have been a horrendously long and arduous operation to be able to remove somebody's colon whilst they were still awake. So these are the operations that we're starting to see into the 1900s and particularly after 1929 when penicillin started to become popular. So there, here's where we start to see the ileostomies really coming to fruition and becoming adapted and advanced as a means of either a temporary diversion or a permanent fixture for some people depending on their condition. And these surgeons that were performing these operations were certainly aware of the issues of skin integrity when performing an ileostomy. Don't forget the aversion or the looping over and creating a spout ileostomy wouldn't become popular until 1951 when Brian Brook does it, which I'm about to talk about in a minute. But before that, they simply used to enter the, the peritoneum, bring the piece of bowel to the surface and just stitch it basically inside the skin. So they were still having these issues of very flush and retracted stomas, which as we well know, even in today's day and age with very good stomas, we can still get skin damage from the corrosive output um, of fecal effluent. And so even in 1941, uh, Dragstead was trying to combat the severe damage to the peristomal skin around an ileostomy. He used to do skin grafts around these ileostomies to try and prevent things like erosion and even stenosis because these stomas were so flat or retracted on the inside, they were still suffering from stenosis in a lot of cases. They were just closing over. And the more skin damage that was created, the, the quicker they were closing. So he suggested skin grafting these ileostomies. And look, there was some successes, but overall there was a large failure of that and it was very costly and expensive to be skin grafting stomas because as as we mentioned they would have kept on producing output which would have leaked onto the new grafts and not necessarily have grown new tissue in a quick or healthy way. Now going back to colectomies with temporary ileostomies back then early in the 1900s when the ileostomy started to become popular the surgeons were very hesitant to consider them as a permanent fixture because of the reasons that I just mentioned with all the trouble with skin problems um, and metabolic issues with having high output or watery output from, from the stoma. And they always considered that an ileostomy would be a temporary measure until the initial disease had either been cured or that the person um, maintained normal function again and... So it started to become apparent that in a lot of these cases, this was not happening. People were not getting better. The conditions would return. Um, cancerous diseases would return after uh, joining the bowels back together. And chronically diseased bowel, like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, would go on to develop a very high incidence of cancer. And so at the time, there was really no alternative to removing the colon as a colectomy, as I said, and creating a permanent ileostomy, which a lot of people live with now. 
And in the 1930s, they devised a four-stage operation with many weeks in between each operation. So nowadays, when you have a colectomy and an end ileostomy, we can do that all in one operation, or perhaps even two, um, depending. But back then, in the 30s, they had to do it across four different operations. So the first operation, you would have the ileostomy created. The second operation, they would remove the right half of the colon. The third uh, operation, the left side of the colon was removed. Um, and then finally, at the very end, the APR or the abdominoperineal resectional closing of the anal sphincter would happen at the very end. And so by the 1940s, so a little bit later, not long after, the second and third stages could actually be done together. And that was because of the improvements in drugs and anesthesia and the surgical techniques that these surgeons were able to use. So after, um, around or after the 1940s, when I mentioned before that Dragstead was trying to, I suppose, create an ideal skin environment by grafting the ileostomies and realizing that it was failing, they had to come up with a solution, much like they did with the colostomy, um, and increase the techniques used to optimize these stomas. They had to do the same with the ileostomy, perhaps even more pertinently because of the skin problems that it was creating. And so they started to realize, well, if these ileostomies are going to become permanent, A, we need to make sure that they are not leaking onto the skin or if we can minimize that as much as possible. Because in the 1940s, there still was not a ready supply of securely fitting ostomy pouches. And that's going to be in another episode about the history of stoma appliances themselves. But Stoma bags really didn't come about until sort of midway through the 1900s. So they were desperately trying to fix the skin of ileostomies. And that was when Brian Brook in 1951 suggested the primary maturation of the ileostomy by folding it over or everting it, as we call it. So that's where they pull the piece of bowel up through the skin, fold it over like a sock, and then stitch it in place. And that's what creates the nice spout little stoma that's not flush or retracted into the skin so that when it does create output, the collecting device can largely protect the skin around that. And Whilst I do acknowledge now that even in this day and age, there are some ileostomies that are created that do not reflect that averted nature because it might be too difficult or surgery simply didn't permit it. This is considered to this day the primary and desired and optimal formation of an ileostomy. And that was all done through the work of Brian Brook in 1951. Now, whilst there were advancements and surgical techniques that were improving to make a better ileostomy, we can't forget about the other stomas. So can't forget about the colostomy. There were certain advancements as well in terms of creating a colostomy for things like rectal cancers. Now, prior to Jan Amasar creating the uh, lumbar colostomy, the concept of an abdominoperineal resection, so removing the lower part of the rectum, the anal canal, etc., was not really heard of back in the day because of the lack of anesthesia. So um, surgeons couldn't spend as much time performing these operations. To remove such a large portion of tissue was very difficult. And so Jeanne Amosar created the lumbar colotomy to essentially divert 
the stool out of the body and the patients could then die peacefully and and pain-free, if you will, um, from the initial cancer. They they didn't choose to remove these tumours at the time. They simply diverted the uh, effluent out of the body before it could obstruct from the tumour. And the first successful resection um, of a rectal cancer is credited to Jacques Lefranc in 1826, who removed only a small portion of the rectum, but he suggested obviously trying to cut out that cancer could potentially allow for reconnecting the bowel later on. Now, fast forward from 1826 uh, to 1908, Ernest Miles had suggested, based on these theories of rectal um, resection, that it wasn't simply enough to take the rectum. And so he started promoting the idea of removing the rectum, the anal canal, perhaps the sigmoid colon, and the lymphatic and fatty supply around those areas. He recognized that cancer could spread or metastasize into the lymphatics. And so he started promoting this idea of the abdominoperineal resection where they would take everything essentially, and the patient would end up with a permanent end colostomy. Now, as I mentioned, the mortality rate for abdominoperineal resection back then was still very high, approximately around 38% of people who were undergoing the APR were dying from, as I said, complications from either peritonitis or their cancer recurring. And so uh, fast forward through to the 1920s, you have a French surgeon called Henri Albert Hartmann. Now, the name might seem familiar to some of you if anybody has had a Hartman's procedure or a Hartman's operation. This is the surgeon that it was all based on. So Henri Albert Hartman was born in Paris on the 16th of June, 1860, as the only son of an Alsatian family. Alsatian from the location, not Alsatian from a group of German shepherd dogs. He first described the Hartmann's operation that became famous with his name in 1921. And he reported on two patients with obstructive carcinoma of the sigmoid colon, so the, the very last portion of the bowel before it reaches the rectum. And he created an end colostomy above the tumour, so quite a ways above the tumour. Um, and then he would remove the sigmoid colon that was affected and he would close off the rectal stump via an abdominal approach. So nothing through the anal canal, so not transanal. He would create a laparotomy, so enter the abdomen through the front. He would remove the section of tumor that was affecting the sigmoid colon and the top of the rectum, and which means any rectum that was left, they would get that closed off. So whether that was sutured shut, or in nowadays they staple it shut, and then above the tumour, uh, the part that's still good, the part of the colon still remaining, they would bring out onto the surface of the skin and that would become an end colostomy. Now, the difference between that procedure and an APR was really dramatic because Hartman went on to describe the procedure in that way on 34 patients of only three died. So his overall operative mortality rate from doing a Hartman's procedure was only 8.8%, which was a drastic reduction compared to people undergoing an APR with a rate of 38, nearly 40% death rate. 
And of course, the other favourable part of doing a Hartman's procedure as opposed to a full APR where the um, anal canal is removed and the anus is completely closed off, which is a permanent fixture, the Hartman's procedure was able to be reversed. So they would uh, staple off or close off the rectal stump. So you still had a part of your rectum left and you still had an end of your colon left. So once they had removed the affected tumor or diseased part of the bowel in the sigmoid colon, for whatever reason, eventually those two ends could be brought back together at a later date. So this was also the other life-changing procedure and probably why a Hartman's procedure is performed a lot more these days as opposed to an APR. Um, Surgeons are more inclined to provide an option for the patient to spare the anal canal and restore continence um, or continuity of bowel function at a later date. So that's just a little clip or a little highlight as to the fact that even into the 1900s, colostomy hadn't been forgotten. Techniques were being progressively improved throughout the years to favor the patient more and and spare a certain part of their function. And this was a real progression because these techniques are still used to this day. We still produce a Hartman's operation and many of them, many people listening to this podcast will have had a Hartman's operation. Having said that, many people will also have had an APR when their cancer or their tumor or the diseased part of the bowel has been too close to the anal canal to preserve it and it has to be removed. All right, so now on to the urinary stomas or the urinary diversion, otherwise known as the urostomy. Now, the urostomy that we know of today is where, as I mentioned, if you heard in some of the other episodes, the All About Urostomy episode, We take a segment of small bowel, implant the ureters into one end, and the other end gets brought onto the abdomen, and that creates the stoma. So the urine essentially collects into the tube of bowel and out through the body into a collection bag. Now, urinary stomas didn't always used to be that way. And to understand the progression of urinary stomas, we have to go all the way back, 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 back again to the very beginning in the 1600s, the late 1600s. So heading into the 18th century. So a series of urinary bladder lesions and tumours were actually first described and documented, so drawn, illustrated, by the Dutch surgeon Frederikus Reusch in his book Observationum, which was published in 1691. Now Frederikus Reusch was actually the surgeon, if any of you listened to episode one, Frederick Reusch was the surgeon that Lorenz Heister went and studied under when he became a surgeon himself. And it is of an interest around that time that when cutting into the urinary bladder for stones was actually a common practice. Remember I said William Cheseldon became actually quite popular for removing stones. But while they were perfecting the technique of entering the bladder for removing stones, they never focused on removing tumours. So interestingly, at the time when, you know, removal of bladder stones was becoming a real documented technique, the excision of papillary tumours of the bladder was not offered at the time. And treating benign and malignant tumours was actually done by compression, so keeping the bladder empty and basically trying to crush them. Um, That gained popularity because of the efforts of Charles Leclerc, between 1644 and 1727, who was another surgeon in Paris. But even he admitted in his uh, his book, 
La Chirurgie Complete, which he published in 1695, that when the compression of these tumours failed, surgical excision was mandatory. Now jump forward another 200 years from everything I've just been saying. So in 1852, a surgeon, John Simon from London, demonstrated the very first urinary diversion via the rectum in a 13-year-old boy who was actually born with what we call extrophy of the bladder, which is essentially where you're born with your bladder on the outside of the body. Now, when I say diversion via the rectum, I mean that he disconnected the ureters from the bladder and re-implanted them into the rectum itself. So the idea was that you would excrete both urine and feces at the same time from the same orifice, so out of the bottom. So after performing anatomical studies and animal experiments, John Simon developed um, like a silver spike almost, like a silver catheter. And with this, he successfully created this diversion by creating basically two what we call ureterosigmoidal fistulas on June the 5th, 1851. He did that. So ureterosigmoidal fistulas, a fistula is basically a, just a connection between two organs or two bits of tissue. So he was essentially just creating two connections through each ureter into the rectum. Now that's pretty crazy to me considering what we do now compared to what we did in 1852 and the idea of putting the ureters into the bowel. He sort of touched on the right idea because we still do implant ureters into the bowel, but the technique was much improved a lot later on. But that's how it started. The idea that you could re-implant the ureters into the colon or, or the large intestine and excrete, excrete both that way. Now, unfortunately, what happened was, or what they were seeing in the post-operative period after this operation, that particular patient, the boy, suffered from recurrent fevers. And even though he sort of got a little bit better, he eventually died of peritonitis a year after surgery, one year after having the operation. So a little bit later on in 1851, a surgeon called Lloyd used the same technique described by John Simon on another patient with bladder extrophy. And that patient also died of peritonitis, but he died on the seventh day after the operation. Now, going on a bit later on in 1878, Thomas Smith described the first direct ureterointestinal implantation on a seven-year-old boy, so further up in the intestine. And yet the same things keep happening. The patients were not surviving long term. And they never they took a long time to figure out what was actually happening. But in fact, by implanting the ureters into the bowel, if you think back, if anybody's heard uh, the episodes on the colostomy or the ileostomy or my brief description ever of what the intestine does, particularly the colon, its primary focus is to absorb liquid. So what was happening is after implanting the ureters into the bowel, the kidneys would still produce urine, the urine would travel into the colon, and the colon would then absorb the urine to a degree back into the body. 
And so in fact, these patients were actually not surviving long term because they were developing a condition, what we call metabolic acidosis. So they were reabsorbing the waste product from the kidneys producing urine because urine is waste and reabsorbing that back into the body, which was essentially poisoning these people. So whilst they had the right idea that that allowing urine to travel through the intestines was a reasonable concept. What they weren't expecting was the fact that the urine was then sitting in the colon for too long and the job of the colon was to absorb and it was absorbing the toxic waste and poisoning these patients to a point they they were dying. So they did throughout the next few years attempt to improve the surgical technique, as I've said they do with stomas or with intestinal operations. And so they tried things like reducing the surgical complications or reducing incidences of pyelonephritis or kidney inflammation by implanting the ureters in a better way so that fecal material wasn't tracking back up through the ureters and creating an infection and so that urine could flow out and not flow back up or or reflux back into the, the kidneys and cause the patient to die from an infection. And these surgeons still thought at the time that this was the best option by implanting the ureters into the colon that it would produce viable results. So in 1910, Robert Coffey was trying to demonstrate a new method for anastomosing the ureters to the bowel, which gained popularity over a time. And, and, you know, these techniques carried right on through until the 1950s. So not even 100 years ago, people, 1950s. So Ferris and Odell at the time in 1950 reported 80% of the urinary diversions were developing what we call hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which is what I was saying, these reabsorption um, toxicity infections. And further investigations by Lapidus in 1951, Parsons, Powell and Pariah in 52, and Stamey in 56, they all clearly demonstrated that it was this metabolic acidosis that was the overall complication of ureterosigmoidostomy. And so eventually that form of urinary diversion greatly lost its popularity. Now, back in 1950, again, the ileal conduit was described and made popular by a surgeon called Eugene Bricker. Now, Bricker was not the first person to invent the technique of the ileal conduit that we know of today. It was actually first described back in 1911 when Zaya reported uh, the results of said operation on two patients that underwent an ileal conduit. So the first case was very successful, except that the patient died 11 days later, which was actually not related to that operation. It was related to the fact that the patient had um, very advanced cervical cancer. Now, the second case that Zaya described was performed on a patient with actual bladder cancer, and that patient died six days postoperatively of peritonitis, so infection. But the concept was starting to sink in even back then before Bricker capitalized on it. So They had the right idea by implanting or using the intestine as a means of 
carrying urine out of the body. But because the colon was absorbing the urine, they realized they had to segregate or separate and minimize the length of bowel that was being used so that the urine would exit the body before it had a chance to absorb back into the blood system. And so this is where they came up with the idea of segmenting a small section of small bowel um, removing the bladder or, or diverting away from the affected bladder, implanting the ureters into that small tube of bowel where the urine could exit the body a lot quicker. And so that technique is the same technique that we use today. Many people undergo a what we call a cystectomy or a cystoprostatectomy if you're a gentleman having your bladder and your prostate removed. Some people even have an ileal conduit done where we have what we call a bladder-preserving ileal conduit, where if it's not related to a cancerous tumor, they will choose to leave the bladder where it is and simply divert the ureters in the form of an ileal conduit as a means of exiting urine from the body, avoiding the bladder. And so this is what happens these days. The technique is still going strong. There have been slight improvements in it, but overall, Eugene Bricker's popularization of the ileal conduit back in the 50s is still used today, and it's considered the, the gold standard for urinary diversion. Now, one more urinary stoma I do just want to touch on is what we call the ureterostomy. So instead of creating an ileal conduit using a piece of small bowel, often the ureters were simply brought out onto the skin and they created two, I guess you could call them mini stomas onto the skin. Now, this was obviously fraught with complications, but ureterostomy is rarely performed today, but it is still sometimes performed on young children and in pediatrics. Now, historically, ureterostomy was used to uh, decompress or, or divert from an obstructed or infected kidney pole before it meets the ureter. And it's still considered an option, as I said, in very small um, babies. But ureterostomy is also very effective for preserving renal function when the upper tract um, is very damaged and they still need to drain from the kidneys. Now, Additionally, they may choose to divert uh, via a ureterostomy when patients have posterior urethral valve issues and their renal function fails to improve after draining the bladder. So there are several um, conditions where they may choose to do a ureterostomy as a diversion, but it is not a commonly done procedure today. Now, one of the reasons why it becomes so difficult to do a ureterostomy is you imagine, think about a flush or a retracted stoma. It can be very difficult to pouch these types of stomas without experiencing leaks. Break down the stoma size into the size of a ureter, which I can tell you is approximately two to three millimeters in diameter. You imagine creating a stoma out of a lumen size that is millimeters in diameter. It becomes very flush with the skin and it is exceedingly difficult to pouch. The technicalities of trying to apply a pouch over a hole so small is difficult in itself. But what you often find also is that because the lumen size of the ureters is so small, when you stitch them to the skin, there is a very high incidence of stenosis or closing over. It heals and then the urine has nowhere to go and it creates kidney infections again. So one of the ways around this that they have done in some cases is where they call a, uh, a loop 
ureterostomy, so much the same fashion as they do a loop ileostomy, where they'll pull it out and evert it on itself, fold it over like a sock and stitch it in place. There is some suggestion and some evidence that that is a more improved technique um, and it has a lot less chance of stenosis, but they still tend to not perform a ureterostomy in adults. It's technically more an operation that's reserved for children or very young babies. Now that almost brings us up to the end of our podcast part two of Stoma's Horrible Histories today. I feel like I've covered many things and I hope you've found it interesting. I've given you some fun facts here and there and I've talked about the three main types of stomas and some other uncommon stomas and how they've all come about. But one more thing that I do want to talk to you about is the Australian history of ostomy surgery because in, in Australia we're still very young, we're only a couple of hundred years old, we don't have the rich history of all these European surgeons that were creating all of these new techniques. So by the time Australia really started to become popular in the medical field, we were actually bringing a lot of European surgeons over on the first fleet and that's how Australian surgery really started. Now, it's actually difficult for me to ascertain the exact first stoma created in Australia for a few reasons. Firstly, many of the documented journals of the First Fleet Navy surgeons lack descriptions of medical procedures, probably due to a lack of clean facilities and equipment to actually perform these operations. They really didn't come to Australia with much in the way of surgical tools. So they probably just weren't done. Um, in such a new territory. Australia really didn't, we didn't have buildings, we didn't have electricity, you know, those sorts of things. Secondly, many convicts themselves went on to become the first Australian surgeons after settlement. So they would secure their apprenticeship and training once they had arrived on land and in the new universities and colleges being established at the time. So as a commoner or a convict going on to get a medical degree, they wouldn't have had the same experience in creating stomas or performing these quite complex surgical techniques. And those techniques would have required the skill and training of the British and European surgeons that were travelling to Australia as um, Navy surgeons or, or ship doctors. Thirdly, the first medical journals to be published in Australia weren't commenced until 1856, so approximately 70-odd years since the first fleet settlement, which was in 1788. So it's entirely possible that stoma procedures may have happened much earlier than I can find, but it simply wasn't documented or published. Now, as the old saying in healthcare practice goes, and I'll say it again, if you don't document it, it didn't happen. And so true are these words that possibly the very first ever documented case of ostomy surgery, so stoma surgery in our very young Australia, was possibly from a British surgeon by the name of Harry Lee Atkinson. Atkinson was born in Yorkshire in 1831 and was the second of 11 children. Educated in London and Paris, he practiced at the York Hospital as a young doctor and then he decided to travel to Australia to practice after the 81-day trip on board the Suffolk. So he was the ship's doctor for the voyage, and he was immediately employed at the Melbourne Benevolent Asylum for about six months. But, as was the popular choice at the time, many would travel further inland and hopefully find their fortune in the perilous search for gold. And Atkinson moved to the town of Bendigo in 1860 
to become the first medical officer at the Bendigo Benevolent Asylum, where he worked for about two years. And his reports at the time indicate that up to about 25% of admissions to that asylum died. So again, it's the same story. Techniques are poor. Sanitation is poor. They were really starting from scratch at this time. So Atkinson eventually set up an independent practice, and he subsequently worked as a medical officer in View Street in Bendigo for the rest of his life. And he was also a visiting medical officer and surgeon at the Bendigo Hospital for the next 15 years, and was subsequently recorded in the book titled The Founders of Australia. Now, during the early years, he published articles in the Australian Medical Journal on the use of things like plaster of Paris, um, carcinoma of the colon, and hiatid cysts. But it was an article submitted by Atkinson in the October 1861 edition of the Australian Medical Journal that describes possibly the very first case of deliberate diverting colostomy formation, or AMASAS operation, remember, on Australian soil. And what I would like to do now is actually quote exactly from the text of Atkinson's article, which was titled Malignant Disease of the Rectum, AMASAS Operation and Recovery. And I quote, Ellen Cody, C-O-A-D-Y, aged 46 years, was admitted into the Bendigo Hospital on April 23rd, 1861, suffering under obstruction of the bowels. She had been actively treated, but without relief to the symptoms. She informed me that for three months past, she had suffered pain in the back and abdomen and had experienced considerable difficulty in obtaining an evacuation of the bowels, and that this was accompanied with considerable suffering. There was extensive tympanitic distension of the bowels, vomiting of the offensive faecal matters, pulse tranquil, not much thirst or heat of skin. I endeavoured to pass an O'Burns tube and give her an enema, but was unsuccessful. I examined the rectum digitally and found high up a large steroid feeling mass, and in employing a rectal speculum, a dark congested substance could be seen. A small bogey could not be passed. Considering this a favourable case for operation, I obtained the assistance of Dr. Dow, one of the consulting medical officers. We agreed on the necessity for the operation, and having placed the patient under chloroform, Dr. Dow proceeded to perform the operation in the ordinary manner. The intestine was readily reached and secured by means of stitches to the integument. A considerable amount of flatus escaped and some faecal matter to the great relief of the poor woman. The vomiting at once ceased, and with the exception of some slight pain in the lower part of the abdomen, accompanied by tenderness, there was no symptoms calculated to cause any alarm. Her strength was freely supported by the use of nutrients and stimulants, an occasional dose of castor oil being given. A day or two after the operation, a small quantity of thin faecal matter passed by the rectum, but this occurred only three or four times and gradually ceased. She continued to progress without any bad symptoms and in the course of three weeks left her bed, wearing a pad and bandage round the loins. She left the hospital June 1st with the wound almost entirely healed and she has since several times called on me. She suffers occasional pain in the back and hypogastrium. She is emaciated and cachectic looking, having the appearance of a woman of 60, so that I have no doubt of the serious nature of her malady. 
So there you go. Harry Lee Atkinson performed an amosars operation, so that's the lumbar colostomy in the side in the back. And this woman was greatly relieved. Now, from what I could see from Australian births, deaths, records, Ellen Cody, if it was the same Ellen Cody, passed away perhaps 12 months later. But that was the nature at the time. Often the Amasaz operation was only done to provide relief in a palliative sense for patients who were suffering from obstructive bowel cancers. Now, this article is is an article that's actually very close to my heart because if any of you listened to the very first launch episode of the Ostomy Nurse Project, or for those of you who know me personally, you would have heard me mention that I work in a regional Victorian hospital as a stomal therapy nurse, which is actually in the town of Bendigo, the same town that Harry Atkinson performed the first colostomy operation. And whilst I don't work at the same hospital that Harry Atkinson practiced at, the building that he set up as his independent practice still exists in the town of Bendigo. And you can still see the building on View Street to this day, although it isn't a medical practice anymore. So that's why I loved researching this part of history, because I feel a close professional connection to perhaps the first Australian stoma ever created even if it was done by a British surgeon. But this isn't the podcast to talk about Australian heritage and the colonisation of white Australia. This is the podcast about the horrible histories of stomas. I hope you guys have gotten plenty out of this very long uh, podcast, both episode one and two. If you like the content that you've heard today, jump on iTunes and rate this episode. You can also go on to Spotify. Um, You can leave a comment if you listen to the podcast on YouTube. I love getting feedback because it allows me to tailor my episodes and bring to you guys the content that you actually want to hear about. Next week's episode, if you're all going to tune in, is about colostomy irrigation, so the irrigation conversation, if you've heard that before. And uh, you can listen to plenty more episodes coming through on the Ostomy Nurse Project. In about four weeks or so, we're going to be heading to Sydney to present the Ostomy Nurse Project, where I'm going to be talking to stoma nurses alike about how I've created this podcast and um, basically promoting it from here. So hopefully our downloads and our subscription rates will will skyrocket And hopefully I'll get a lot more encouragement uh, to carry on and continue to produce podcasts that all of you may want to listen to. So thanks again for tuning in to the Ostomy Nurse Project, coming to you from down under here in Australia, just like where your stoma is. Ta-ta for now, everybody.